from the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. This episode, I pick the brains of Tracy Johnson. And so you think that for those that might have seven or eight doctors, trying to ramp it up into the nine to 12 is actually going to make a difference? It will. So you'll get in economics terms, marginal cost, marginal return, marginal revenues, simply by adding higher utilisation. Tracy Johnson is a health economist and policy advisor who likes pushing the boundaries. She's led the startup of some successful health tech enterprises, as well as Queensland Health's Office of Health and Medical Research. Right now, though, she's the CEO of Inala Primary Care. It's a not-for-profit general practice in a part of Brisbane that experiences a lot of disadvantage. And in her usual boundary-pushing style, Tracy's bridging the traditional divide between local health districts and public health networks. She's also crunched the numbers on how to make GP clinics financially viable. What is the golden ratio for doctor numbers in a clinic? And how can you ramp up returns from that expensive piece of commercial real estate you need for your clinic? Let's find out. Great to have you join us in the tea room today, Tracy Johnson. Thank you for having me, Wendy, and all of the lovely readers and followers of the Medical Republic. Now, Tracy, tell us a little bit about your background. It's many and varied. It is. I have the perfect CV for being in this spot right now. So I started off as a hardcore commercial analyst doing an economics law degree. I've worked in pharmaceutical and medical devices commercialization and scale up. I've worked with lots of tech start companies. I've even founded some tech cut start companies that have been very successful. But ultimately, by the time I got to my middle years, I was really fascinated by the question of not how can technology solve the healthcare conundrum that we have, but how can we work through the great people in our healthcare system to do a better job? And that's what led me to Anala Primary Care a decade ago. They will probably take me out because I have an extraordinary team of nearly 48 people working here and we're here to change healthcare and make it better. And is it a general practice? It's absolutely a general practice. So we do the things that every other GP practice does. We do baby immunisations, we care for women while they're pregnant. We do just all of the normal stuff that a GP practice does. We're probably a bit larger than most GP practices. But what makes us special is we work in Queensland's largest housing commission suburb. We have the highest rate of disability pensioners in the state in this suburb. We have five jails just down the road. So we specialise in complex chronic comorbidity, which fascinates me because it's about the diseases that lifestyle creates for people. And we're looking for the solutions about how can we work together with patients and their carers and the rest of the very fragmented healthcare system we work within to actually deliver care where people want it, which is near to home. Nobody wants to go to hospitals. So I've spent the last decade looking at what I can bring out of hospitals and what I can give into patients into the hands of many great primary care providers to actually make life better for everyone. How do you bridge that PHN-LHD divide? There's lots of stakeholders in healthcare. We have one of the world's most fragmented healthcare systems and every time I have to explain it to overseas people that visit us for study tours or that I do research with or visit overseas, I'm always embarrassed at just how ridiculous the healthcare system is. <laughs> it's great. We get great healthcare here, but man, it's complicated. So because I have worked in Queensland Health in senior executive roles, I've obviously worked in, in big pharma and, and big industry. I might be a tiny little person, but I'm kind of just brave and I'll just pick up the phone to people I don't know and say, hey, look, I've got a great idea here. I've got a business case behind it. Here's the problem that I believe needs to be solved and you've got an interest in solving that problem and here's how big it is. Can I come and talk to you? So doors open mainly because I pitch a case 
gather my evidence to put together into that case and I'm just prepared to go and speak to people until I get listened to. I guess having a background in health economics is helpful in putting together those business cases. Absolutely it is. I know how to crunch numbers. I know, how, But, I mean, let's face it, most business cases, if they're more than two to three pages long, you've lost your audience anyway. So you don't need to do something super special. So if I look at what we've done in the hepatitis space, for example, we knew that in our suburb, not surprisingly, it's a high migrant suburb, 28% of people themselves as being ethnically Vietnamese. Then we have a heap of people who've come here from Africa, the Middle East and Asia. Um, so it wasn't surprising that we had a heap of hepatitis a number of years ago, a whole bunch of new drugs were released in the hepatitis space. And as an ex-clinician, I was really passionate about what can I do in my generation, in my role in a community of high need to try and eliminate hepatitis C because new drugs are available to do that. So I did some number crunching and looked at what were the rates of prevalence of hepatitis C in our community. And then I was very able to quickly look at rates of hepatitis around Queensland. And what I discovered was that our community was a hotspot of disease. I then spoke to some hepatologists at our local hospital district and they were looking at, you know, two to three year waits for people with hepatitis to be referred, which was ridiculous and they were feeling pressured by that. So together I said, well, why don't we, you know, pull together a business case? So they started sharing with me a whole bunch of their data about what troubled them about their long waiting lists. And we came up with a novel model of care called HepReach. It didn't take much to show that HepReach could be delivered in the community rather than through a hepatology department. We could help eliminate disease in a whole bunch of people and surveil others once a disease had been eliminated or was identified. And that they actually turned up to their appointments and they enjoyed seeing the same people all of the time and that you know a whole bunch of this stuff could be funded through Medicare with GPs who wanted to develop a special interest in that space. So we've now, for a number of years, been running a collaborative model with our hospital partners, and it just started with that, heck, there's new drugs available for hepatitis. What can I do to make them available to a high-need community? Crunching some simple numbers, talking to people that actually wanted to do the right thing, and most people in healthcare do. And together, you know, we opened some doors. We didn't get a lot of money. We really, really did. But it worked. So I guess it's the numbers crunching that fascinates me for this particular episode because you're doing some incredible work, some taking on some big, juicy, wicked challenges and finding ways to resolve them or work towards a resolution. Now, that's in a not-for-profit big clinic. What advice do you have for GPs who own and run their own practice in terms of being financially viable? So if I look at what's happened to general practice over the last 20 years, we've seen real erosion in our incomes. The data is out there from many sources. So I want to call out the fact that the government has underfunded and undervalued general practice for a long time. To make the numbers work here is a hideous and ongoing battle. So again, I would say that the data that the Commonwealth Bank produces occasionally, that the RACGP produces, et cetera, that you know, in most recent form, few weeks back said 70% of GP practices say that they're not sustainable. I think they say that with good reason because I look at my numbers and think, oh, my God, you know, how are we going to keep going? Because what's happened to us, and I think this is why the system is turning the way that it is, is because the numbers for general practice are so bad. And so if you're running your own general practice, you are not alone. The numbers are bad everywhere is my core message to everyone, which is why we need to work together to get change. What has happened over time is that because general practice is a privatised 
system largely and I need to run what we're doing as a charitable entity as a privatised system because the number of grants that I can get is tiny in comparison to my total turnover and I use those grants to literally create a new model of care that I then have to fund through Medicare or or whatever so you know by and large 99% of my work is very much like every other GP practice it's just that I find grants to innovate but the innovation then needs to become sustainable. So what is my core message to general practice? My core message to general practice is I've seen a number of things happen and accelerate over the last decade. I've seen general practices systematically find ways of finding patients that are more profitable to see. What do I mean by that? I mean that I've seen the big corporate groups come in and buy up practices and through their staffing and other models deliberately cherry pick patients who are quick and easy And patients self-select. If they're simple patients and, you know, they only need a quick script or they need a simple care, well, then they'll find it satisfying to go to those super high throughput corporate models, which are becoming increasingly available. Because most patients see access as the important thing. They don't look at quality of care. They have real incapacity to understand all that goes on to deliver comprehensive care. Hang on. So are you suggesting that these bigger corporate models are harvesting the top layer of patients who could be paying and funding the other general practices? The way Medicare is set up is as an insurance scheme. So every insurance scheme has really high cost patients, you know, the big middle and then really low cost patients. And if you've got a bit of everything, the system works. What has been happening quite systematically is that general practice has become segmented. So there are the practices that the doctors themselves own and they really want to serve their local community and do the right thing. And, you know, they'll take everyone, they'll take lots of families and and by and large people who get into healthcare, whether they're doctors, nurses or anyone else, they want to do the right thing by people. I don't accept that, you know, people necessarily get into the system for bad intent. But if you create a model where patients can't book in to see a doctor because you want to keep your books fully utilised because just to pay the rent, you know how much money you've got to be generating every hour, and that's where general practice has got to, our rents and all of those things have not kept up with the amount of Medicare reimbursement that we have. So practices have made some fairly deliberate choices about their business model. And you know what? If you've got simple care needs and you don't mind which doctor you see because you don't have ongoing care needs, a practice that just has a walk-in model, high-throughput kind of environment, you'll take it because it's convenient, doesn't cost you anything, and you think all doctors are the same. You've then got practices like ours and like so many other GP practices where you've got doctors who really want to build an ongoing relationship with patients, they want to care for them cradle to grave, but the problem is we end up with so many more of the patients with complex comorbidity and complex issues they take a lot more time. And the sweet spot, as everyone has been talking about for a long time, in the Medicare model is six-minute medicine. These patients can't be seen in six minutes. They typically take 18 minutes, so it's like three times as long. So as a consequence, your revenue per hour is so, so much less. So you have two choices as a business owner. You can charge an out-of-pocket expense, which now quite justifiably is more than the Medicare rebate because costs have crept up that much. Or if you're in an environment like mine where if I look at the number of patients under the age of 16 and the number of health and concession card holders that I have, that makes up nearly three quarters of my patient population. So how do you get by financially? Well, in my environment where I have one of the most complex patient groups, according to the PHN data that I've been able to access, in the poorest suburban location in Queensland, 
I moved to introduce a mixed billing model some many months ago because we couldn't keep the doors open just based on a bulk billing model because what was happening was we had this aggregation of people who were over the age of 65, who had mental health issues, who were migrants, who didn't speak English, et cetera, et cetera. And we simply could not continue as we were. So we now, even for patients who are full pensioners, if they come in for their annual driver's check, they now get charged 27 for being part of what is quite a comprehensive driver's check process. If you do surgical work with us now, we've got people who've got additional procedural skills. We'll charge you 50 bucks per site for doing some of that procedural work. So the long and the short of it is that you have had to move to a mixed billing model Is there also something around an economy of scale that is most advantageous for clinics? So I think what economics taught me, and I was a young and when I started doing economics all those many years ago, is that there are economies of scale at a couple of different points along the business model size. So I think there's a sweet point where if you've only got four to five GP, you know, there's a business model that can be formed around that because there's a certain staffing mix that that goes with that and a certain size of buildings and a lot of General practices obviously have their buildings in property trusts and things like that that are mutually beneficial to the people that own the practice. So tell us a little bit more about that particular model. Tell us, explain what it looks like. Are there allied health professionals? Do you have a nurse practitioner? Not generally. So most of those quite small practices basically are an avenue for the doctors to use their skill. There'll be a treatment room nurse in a, a space in the building, a couple of receptionists who you know might also have a part-time or, you know, reception come practice manager kind of person. So it's quite a lean team. And what's interesting about teams of that size and the management literature backs me on this is that if you're managing up to about seven to 10 people, a fairly average manager can do a reasonable enough job of keeping order in an environment of that scale. And because you've lowered your costs because you don't have a lot of nurses and you don't have a whole bunch of receptionists to keep coordinating and whatever, you know, it can survive. Do you need to have a pathology Incorporated as well? Do you need to rent out some of your space? Absolutely. If you don't have on-site pathology and or pharmacy that you're subleasing to, given the rents that people are now paying in this sector, it will be incredibly hard for you to survive. So by using your patient base as a marketing tool for other providers to work with you, absolutely. All of a sudden, you've got a much more viable business model. Your other idea is to just charge full out-of-pocket expenses to two-thirds or so of your patients. And again, happy days for everyone. If you're not in either of those circumstances and or you want to, you know, offer better care to a bigger group of patients, your next sort of tipping point seems to sit at around 9 to 12 doctors and then again up around 20 doctors. There seems to be these natural loci around which practice size gravitates in this country, each of which has different capital costs because you'll need obviously a far bigger building if you've got, you know, 20 full-time equivalent doctors versus 9 to 11, 9 to 12 full-time equivalent doctors, you'll need a much bigger nursing team. If you're going for that really meg scale of doctors, your best bet would be absolutely you must have pathology, absolutely you must have pharmacy, absolutely you must rent out some rooms to allied health and other specialty providers and really do at-scale work with a really professional management system, some really slick internal systems because you've just got so many moving parts. And certainly that's what you know, we've really had to invest in as we've grown is all of those systems that just keep order in what is quite a large, complex, messy environment that revolves around complex, messy patients because no patient is the same. And, <laughs> the same. and in terms of 
a practice manager. It's a full-time role for the 9 to 12 doctors and 20-plus doctors, no doubt. And that the level of the level of management experience would need to be more sophisticated, I imagine. Absolutely. And, you know, this is another area of gross inequity between general practice and specialty practice. So, you know, if you're working in a specialty practice, it's very common nowadays for practice managers to be paid a quarter of a million dollars a year, which, you know, if you're dealing with four or five specialists who are all earning one and a half to four million, five million dollars a year, coming up with a quarter of a million dollars to pay a high quality practice manager to manage a business with a turnover of 10 million or whatever. No big deal. Whereas in general practice, the average salary for our practice managers is so tiny. You know, a lot of them are on sixty-five dollars to $85,000 a year. You're not going to attract too many graduate trained commerce sort of type graduates to do that work. And yet you'll be running a business with a turnover of $3 million. In no other sector do you see sort of the operations practice manager kind of role being run for that sort of money. These are roles that would be on $180,000 plus. But just as our GPs earn a fraction of what their specialty colleagues do, we see the same thing happening with our practice nurses, with our practice managers, and even some of our allied health players. You know, they can earn a lot more in the hospital system than working in a more bulk-billed kind of environment in primary care. And these are some of the inequities that a system that's very privatised and relying on Medicare as a subsidy have generated. So what's the most common size of general practice in Australia? Is it that small four or five doctors? Yeah, so there's two sizes of practice that predominate. There's the four to five doctor practice and there's sort of the seven to ten size practice, by and far the most common practice sizes. And so you think that for those that might have seven or eight doctors, trying to ramp it up into the nine to 12 is actually going to make a difference? It will. So you'll get in economics terms, marginal cost, marginal return, marginal revenues, simply by adding higher utilisation. So if you're running a practice where you've got nine doctors and you've got the capacity to move up to 12 doctors, the way you might do that is by opening from seven o'clock in the morning until seven o'clock at night. You don't actually add on any more rooms, but you make sure that the rooms that are there are utilised across the day. Or if you've got doctors who are working part-time and they might work from eight in the morning until 2.30 and pick their children up, bring in some allied health or some of those people that might want to use those rooms from three o'clock until seven o'clock, then so make sure that you've so just got utilisation. Sublet just for those maybe five hours during the afternoon. Absolutely, absolutely. It's surprising how many part-time clinicians are happy to do those piecemeal hours and likewise even rethink what are the schedules where in the process of starting this conversation in our practice, you know, working a day that starts at 7.30 and finishes at 5.30 and you're just seeing patient after patient after patient is incredibly gruelling and it's going to be guilt-inducing and it's going to be tiring and it's going to be, you know, a problem. So what some practices are starting to do is say, well, okay, some doctors start at 7 and they work until 1.30. Other doctors start at 1 and they work until 7. So they've kind of got like two shifts of doctors. And by reducing the cognitive burden that happens from working too many hours on these really long days, they're actually finding doctors enjoy their work more. You get more utilisation around those rooms and generally things come together better for the patients as well. So rather than necessarily growing an empire where you've got all of these doctors where this is my room, no one else can use it, this is the way I do things around here, which happens in a lot of GP practices, um, create a general practice environment 
where we've got the capacity to care and it's about organising your resources around how you do that care. Hot-desking doctors. Hot-desking doctors because you know what, if you've got a doctor that only works three days a week and there's an awful lot of GPs that only work three days a week, why should that room be set aside just for their special interest three days a week and not used on other days of the week by other people? And the availability to the community of having longer hours overall is amazing. It is amazing, but likewise the community needs to understand that people working early in the morning, people working late at night is kind of premium hours. So even in a bulk billing environment like ours, you know, we're looking at our schedule of fees around those hours where if you want to come really early or you want to come really late, chances are you're working. So you should pay an out-of-pocket cost for accessing care during those times because they're kind of inconvenient hours and you value your time enough to want to stay at work, well, value my time that I'm at work at hours that you're not. I love it. Yeah. So you're looking at billing differently, utilising the rooms more fully, looking at a bulk, bulk bill, looking at mixed billing arrangements, looking at sharing your amenity with Allied Health, with other pathology, pharmacy, et cetera. Yeah, and the other thing that we're doing is utilising the team. We use our nurses more. We have non-dispensing pharmacists on our team, et cetera. Is it a struggle to pay for them? Oh, yeah. Look at my, you know, grey hair that's dyed on a regular basis and look at <laughs> the growing wrinkles that I've got. But, you know, when you've got doctors going, oh, I need to do this care plan, Our doctors would say, actually, my nurses do way better care plans than I do because our nurses generally get 45 minutes to an hour to do a care plan, depending upon whether the person needs an interpreter. So they do way better care plans than the doctors do. The doctors then spend 15 to 20 minutes with that patient doing the scripts that might come out of it and the referrals that might go off to other specialists and, you know, checking in that these are the goals that the patient really has. By using a nurse-led model around care planning and over 75 health assessments and those sorts of things, What we find is that the nurses pick up a whole bunch of preventative health stuff so you can bring the patients back to do that preventative health stuff in a separate appointment. But they do such great care plans that the doctors don't need to spend as much time with the patients to do the care plans so they can allocate that time to seeing another patient. At the World Health Summit, we heard Jay Rebick talking about clinical commissioning, about regional commissioning and the work that was being done in central is being done in Central Coast LHD, where there's that partnership between the, the PHNs and the LHD to create a strategic needs assessment. You know, we're talking about teams within a clinic and within a community. Is there any possibility for that to go further? Or do you work with PHNs as well as your LHD? Absolutely. So at the moment, we've had our PHN, we've gone to them and said, for example, we have so many of these patients that have issues with homelessness, housing instability, dietary issues, NDIS access, my aged care access, all sorts of stuff that involve paperwork and systems outside of healthcare. But they present to us stressed out, not sleeping, not taking their medications, etc., because of all of these other social determinants of health. So we gathered up all of that data, took it to our primary health network and said, we need a solution. The primary health network in turn commissioned social workers to come in as social prescribing agents in our practice. So we now have embedded social work in our practice where we can do warm handovers to the social worker to sort out the NDIS application, to sort out the housing application, to sort out a whole bunch of stuff for these patients that might have interactions with the you know justice system, whatever. 
takes the pressure off our doctors. We're dealing with the real problem rather than medicalising what is a social problem. So that's- our doctors are happier. And, you know, what we're seeing as a result of that, because we've started measuring the results, because we've now got a funded care navigator for our multicultural patients, we've got these social prescribing groups, et cetera, the hospital's better off because patients actually turn up for appointments that they're supposed to have. The patients are better off because they're dealing with their issues. We're better off because we're not being sunk by these super long consultations with patients that have got heart sink elements to them. You know, this is the sort of co-commissioning that could be really powerful. And then there's disease-specific co-commissioning, like what we've done around hepatitis and renal disease. Any comment on the current Medicare rort story run by ABC, City Morning Herald? The well, I'm excited to see that I can answer that question by saying, you know, Medical Insights has done an article today which mathematically proves that one-third of Medicare billings cannot be fraudulent because the amount of money that would have to go to individual specialists would put them above the you know, tax and all sorts of other inquiries. So I don't believe that anything like one-third of Medicare billings are fraudulent. Do I believe that our system at times incentivises activity? Absolutely. Do I believe that we see tests repeated in the same environment weeks apart? Absolutely. So I do believe that our activity-based system has incentivised lower value care here and there. Is that fraudulent? No, it's not. We've just got to ask ourselves much bigger questions about what does our health system mean, what is our individual role within that healthcare system and what are the incentives that we need to deliver? How do we become more patient-centred and do what the patient needs? Entirely different question than one about fraud. I just cannot conceive of a world where the doctors that I see going home, the nurses I see going home feeling incredibly guilty that they haven't tackled as much stuff as they'd like to each day are committing fraud. I just, I just, it beggars belief. Tracy Johnson, thanks so much for your time today. Not a problem, Wendy. Pleasure talking to you. That was Tracy Johnson, CEO of Inala Primary Care. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the tea room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.